Hello, friends, and welcome to the Now in Zen podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Goo Goo Sleep Company and by Dream Drive. We all know getting a great sleep is important, and this is what Goo Goo is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Gugu, better sleep, better you. Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families and is more affordable than trains and hotels as it's only one price per night. Go to dreamdrive.life to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. Hello, friends. This episode, we discuss the macro trends shaping Japan's future, foreign branding hits and misses, and the three golden rules to Japan market entry with marketing specialist Dominic Carter. For sure, this episode is guaranteed to make you smarter about doing business in Japan. Dominic has so much unique insight into the Japan market, he even has the best definition of the word insight I've ever heard. His knowledge is backed up with over 20 years of successful market entry, market research, and branding in Japan. He shares many stories and produces numerous quote-worthy observations. So, get your pen and paper ready. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Dominic Carter. A lot of people have really been down on the future of Japan. They say that it's a shrinking population, it's an aging population, all the things that we've already talked about and that we already know. Well, the, I- the idea that Japan's doomed is ridiculous. Um, and tell me, like, what advantage has been having a huge workforce during the latest COVID crisis? Exactly. To compare what's been happening in Japan in terms of social stability versus in the US at this point in time. Yeah. Let's look a little bit further into the future to a world that's dominated by AI and robotics. What benefit is a large working age population going to be if you don't have jobs for everybody because they're being done by robots? So it may well turn out, and this is just a hypothesis, we'll, we'll see, but it may well turn out that Japan is actually in a sweet spot. We may actually want a very small working age population, relatively speaking. If all of the productivity is going to be driven by machines, like why do we want why do we want a large working age population? And the people who work are going to be very highly paid. So if you're selling into the market, you're still going to have plenty of opportunities, especially if you're selling an elevated product and an experience. So the idea that Japan has no future as a market is asinine. You talk to your Reiwa generation people, and how many of them want to shop at a department store? Probably not too many. Well, not not with the way that 
department stores are now, but the problem with retail is the people that run retail because it's very, very hard for them to get out of their model of what retail should be. But exactly. for someone who is coming from a digital perspective or somebody who's never worked in retail, the idea that retail is an experience is yep. actually not such a weird one. So why would you not, why would you not set up retail sites as uh, product demonstration sites, as uh, you know, showrooms, showrooms yep. uh, fun stuff? You know, shopping is fun. Why do people go shopping? Because they've got nothing to do. Like, right. what do you do in Tokyo? You eat and you go shopping. Goes back to what we were talking about, growing market share was basically creating a new thing or creating a new experience. And it's, it's buying versus shopping. I mean, Amazon is buying. Going to Ginza is shopping. Or mm. going to Isetan to have a look around. Yes. It's the difference between time well saved, which is Amazon, and time well spent, which is going to an outlet mall and walking around. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I mean, if you go to an outlet, basically it's 100% impulse buys. It's treasure hunting. Exactly, that idea that I found something. You know, yeah, the department stores, if they don't change, they are going to go out of business and nobody will care. Yeah, brutal comment. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic Carter, welcome to the Now and Zen podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. You have been working in Japan for well over 20 years, and you are currently the representative director and CEO of the Carter Group, a company you started 17 years ago. Yes. A true success story in Japan. Well, very maybe that's overstating it a little bit, but you know we've managed to survive and grow in that time. And of course, the last six months have been an extraordinary time as well, and we've survived. And I think now more than ever, the kind of work we do is is actually a value to our clients. You must have seen a lot being a foreign entrepreneur in the two thousands. I'm mm -hmm. sure that yep. wasn't easy. It was still part of the post-bubble, the lost decade or almost lost two decades. Mm, mm. And you had the Lehman shock four years into your business. Then you had 311 disaster. Mm -hmm. And you've survived as well as Japan has. It's still the third largest economy in the world. It has a great standard of living. Without a doubt, some of the most sophisticated and demanding consumers in the world. What I'm trying to say here is you must have had some challenges but at the same time, you're blessed with a great market to be working in. Mm. Has running the Carter Group been a real roller coaster for you? It has been. I'm, at some points, I've been surprised at how we have been able to survive through it all. But I think, you know, uniquely in Japan compared to some other places, it's your relationships that really get you through. And it's, it's you know, so doing the right thing by people and mm -hmm. being stable and as trustworthy as you can, I think really counts for a lot here. And it, it helps you in funny ways. It helps you with staff, with attracting people to work with you. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps you with clients. It helps you with suppliers. Uh, all, of, all of that is extremely important to be able to keep going because when things get a little bit tough, you need people to sort of have your back and, and support you and you in turn support other people. Perfect. I like that. What are some of the obstacles and challenges that you had in getting your business up and going in the early years? I only ask it because everybody's been through some adversity mm. in their life. Mm. And mm. this is what makes them both engaging and interesting, I think. 
Yeah, when we started the business, I also had some quite strong competition from my previous company as well, because we were starting a business in the same sector as my previous company. So that, Interesting. that attracted a quite robust response. But nevertheless, I, I learned over time not to worry too much about competition and to focus a lot more on you know, what we're actually doing. In terms of challenges, it took me a long time to work out how to sell effectively. Mm. Um, what we're doing and uh, that's still an art rather than a science I think but the western way of selling doesn't really work that well for us what does that mean I guess it's a more sort of linear approach I suppose you know find a find a prospect approach present um, you know develop relationships so on and so definitely the sales cycle in Japan is a lot longer than it is in any other markets is that kind of what you're alluding to yes it is it's also very important who you have actually leading that sales process so as the head of the business yes I play a role in certain deals but also having that person who is actually able to relate and be persistent but in a pleasing way uh, and some of, as you know, some of those deals can take a year or two years to come to fruition. Yeah, I always say to my salespeople that there is a fine line between shitsukoi and nebarizyoku, which would be there's a fine line between being persistent and being annoying. Yes. It's subjective. Yes. yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also think there is something called aggressive positioning that you can engage in as well. So, Explain um, that. In, in a B2B context, it always works better when the client finds you. Through the sales process, the, um, the prospect must always think that they are making the decision to have the next meeting. So if you can achieve the uh, situation where the client is actually the one who's deciding to move that process forward, then you're extremely likely to end up in a sale. Uh, but at all times, I think that the, the prospect needs to feel that they're leading, yeah. even if maybe they're not. The Carter Group, your company, you focus on Japan market entry, market and consumer research, brand equity evaluation, Mm -hmm. direct marketing, and all of the other things related, qualitative and quantitative. Yes. Did I forget anything? No, I think that covers most of it. We have our clients usually are in a they're in a number of different situations. They may be a foreign brand that doesn't know anything about the market and so they're looking for somebody to kind of show them the ropes, introduce them to the way the market looks and the way that the consumer makes decisions in the market uh, as well as anything else that they need to do in order to adapt their offering to the market. Mm -hmm. So that kind of situation. We also work with marketers that have been well established in the market for a long time. But we do work for some of the major market research companies as well Mm -hmm. and I will sometimes ask them why don't you work with your own office here in Tokyo but there are certain things that we're very good at doing. Mm -hmm. uh, Like what? Uh, recruiting very hard to recruit consumers so there there could be let's say luxury very bespoke luxury watch for example Mm -hmm. that you know may have 50 people buy it in a year we will go and find those people for certain types of projects i think i think our agency is well thought of does most of your business come from referrals or word of mouth or is it just organic i mean how do you get new clients a lot of it's repeat business so because we've been in business for 17 years you do build up a a clientele and people do come back Uh, referral is also a factor as well but we have a website 
we have set the website up as a, I won't say an e-commerce site, but it is set up to make it very easy for people to lodge inquiries with us. And we do get, you know, sometimes uh, two or three inquiries a day through the website. So Wow. Well, speaking of your website, um, what I've seen also through your social media posts and your blog is that you really like to show your insight, share your knowledge, and also highlight your competencies. A lot of what you offer information-wise is content that many companies charge for. Mm. Why this altruistic approach? Well, I enjoy it to start with. And I think that it's important to, I think I mentioned aggressive positioning earlier, I think it's important to be very clear if you want to establish an expert position in a certain field, I think you you do need to aggressively do so. And I think the claim that you make has to be backed up by something. Even though the content that's produced may appear to be very detailed, in fact, the work that we do, the paid work that we do is a lot more detailed and a lot more specific to the client's actual situation. But your site and also your your blog, you talk about case studies and you actually talk about your three golden rules for mm-hmm. Japan market entry yes. Uh, yes. and a lot of other great content that's very valuable. Mm. Mm. And when you do that, you give the impression that you know what you're talking about. You're walking yes. the walk, not just yes. talking the talk. Well, I think you know we hear this word insight a lot, but insight is really a combination of experience and context with new information. So we have experience and context, but gonna, our clients pay for new information. Say that so, again. I think I'm going to write that down. Say that again. <laughs> yeah, no, I think insight's a word that is often bandied about. I think to create an insight, you need to have experience, context, as well as new information. So just having new information without context will lead you to a bad decision most of the time, especially if you're not familiar with the culture in Japan. Right. So, you know, part of our job actually is to stop our clients making mistakes or drawing a naive conclusion. And I think that that's, that's really important. So in terms of the, the content that we put on the site, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's a portion of the experience and context. And, and uh, insight. Well, yeah, but, you know, that come, but you know, that part of it really comes yeah. for free. It, it may, uh, and I think it does uh, cause a client to choose us versus other agencies, and that's what they tell us. They probably want to know more. Yep. Wow, yep. Dominic Carter. It's like your mental kaleidoscope is always <laughs> twisting. Yes. <laughs> well, that's actually, that's a, that's a metaphor I've used recently, in fact. You used it with me. That's why oh, I did. Re- I? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, things that, like the kaleidoscope's a really interesting metaphor because situations are so complex now in marketing that you do one thing and it has it is like a twist of the kaleidoscope it actually changes the way everything looks there are a lot more touch points than there used to be there's a lot more competition than there used to be Uh, there's more um, disruption exactly exactly and there are more there are more identifiable segments in the market than there used to be as well and and that's the way that you can grow in Japan you're not going to grow in Japan by by uh, endlessly targeting the mass market and where all of the domestic competitors are also targeting true 
You did a market research recently, which resulted in the four macro trends shaping modern Japan. Yes. What I can say about those four areas, which I'll tell you <laughs> in a second, uh, is that COVID, I think, actually has focused even more importance on, on those areas. And so, speed as and well. Yes. Yes, yes. So in generally speaking, the the areas of change and also the areas of opportunity are very related to the demographics in the country. So shrinking population, aging population, we all know this, but I like to use the metaphor of a vice, you know, when you get wood and you, you have to saw the wood and you put it in the metal vice and you turn the screw. Imagine the country as being in the vice. Okay. Um, and at first it's kind of comfy in the vice, you know, it kind of feels okay, it's kind of cosy. But then you keep turning, you keep turning and it's tighter and tighter and tighter and then actually it's kind of uncomfortable. And I think we're sort of coming to the uncomfortable part oh, um, yeah. in Japan where, you know, something's got to change. Yeah. And in a weird way, the COVID crisis has given us a couple of years where there can be a bit of a pause in that. Right. But, you know, if you look at just the sheer labor shortage that exists in Japan, so there's nothing like having an economic downturn to ease a labor shortage. And so you can leave some of those issues uh, associated with the labor shortage alone mm -hmm. for a while. But we are going to have to come back to things like, yes, women in the workplace, gender equality, foreigners in the workplace, older, older people in the work, workplace. All of those things need to be looked at. Japan, usually when it comes to change, they kind of go kicking and screaming defiantly into that change in a slow way. But yes. I think COVID has really sped that up in a couple areas. Through your market research of the four macro areas mm. where Japan is mm. changing, number one sure. is the changing world of work mm. is number one. Number two is women power. Number three is generational dynamics. Mm -hmm. And number four is internationalization. Yes. So especially the first one. Yes. Because Japan was already taking some baby steps towards this before. And that's obviously yes. that's what you're... Yes. Well, people have known what they needed to do, but doing it and knowing what you need to do and doing it, I think is, yeah. a, different, is a different matter. Exactly. Um, and so the, the crisis obviously has created the opportunity for, for, for more flexibility in the way that people work. Work from home, shared offices, flex time, et cetera, right? Yes, okay. and I think generally speaking, employees like it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a struggle for middle managers because they are not used to not having someone right in front of them. So I think there can be a little bit of a struggle for control. So how am I gonna control the employee now that they're not you know, sitting with me? So I think there have been some pretty bizarre attempts to you know, recreate the workplace in people's homes and yeah. and I don't think that that's going to work but for the most part staff do like working from home but I do think that it raises some questions maybe we'll see it in about a year or so um, I think there's the potential for alienation uh, if work from home becomes the majority of the way that people work but we'll see there yeah. are differing opinions on that even within my company I think that flexibility is extremely important if you want to attract staff. Right. And so the changing world of work in Japan really has to do with being flexible. You have to be flexible, especially for women. It's obvious to see the areas where it becomes challenging for women to work. If they have children, 
they have certain commitments that they need to keep time-wise and, and, and so on and so forth. But I think for men too, they've lacked flexibility and they've yep. been chained to the office. So I think going forward, most likely flexible workplaces, probably at the top of the list of employee preference, maybe even more so than salary. Yes, yes, I would imagine so. And it's a very big change for most companies here. So it's not just a change in the format of work, it's a change in values that's going on. So people who have been stuck at home all of this time are reappraising what their values are. They're reappraising what's important, especially around work. Uh, They're thinking much more about their life outside of work which is something that they never really had to think about because a lot of them don't have lives out of work normally. Good point. So they're starting to think about things like, well, you know, especially single men who live on their own. That's been tough for those guys. But these guys are starting to think about things like cooking. They're starting to think about things like decorating. They're buying nicer stuff. I know. And yeah, no, it's the, these trends are very supportive for businesses uh, like yours. And uh, I think that will, that trend will continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this whole crisis has been a shock to the system. So I think the world of work is something that I was beginning to speak about last year in a big way. So, for example, uh, if people have more flexible approaches to work time-wise, where they go shopping changes. So are all of the shops going to be concentrated in Ginza and Shibuya and Shinjuku? Well, not necessarily. Right. You're going to shop at different times. You're going to, you might go to Tokyo Midtown and Rapongi during the week. It might not. Your shopping time might not only be compressed into the weekend. There are other times when people like to go out. That reminds me, I had an interesting conversation with somebody recently about the depachka, mm, the, mm, the basement mm. at the department store that has great food. Yeah. But because of the uh, restaurants being shut down, now a lot of the restaurants now offer this takeout service, mm. which is like a bento of the restaurant's food. Yes. So we were having this discussion on how this might affect the department store because always that that basement first floor has been one of the big money makers for department stores but now instead of me going from work to the department store to the train station and then commute home now i can just commute straight home and i can buy a bento at maybe a restaurant yes near my house or uber yes. eats or even if i'm not commuting at all I'll, i will go go somewhere local excellent Yeah, so I think that these transactional opportunities are actually kind of obvious, but what's not quite so obvious is how how you recreate experience around dining when it's not in a restaurant. How you recreate something that's elevated at home. So why would you put fine cuisine in a plastic container? I don't understand that. I don't want to eat expensive food out of plastic. So how do, you facilitate, how do you facilitate an elevated experience? And then, you know, what actually is the experience? Is it yeah. just the taste of the food? Eating out was never just about the taste of the food. So does that mean you have to put a waiter at home, in home with them? And, you know, I, I, I don't know. In fact, I, I haven't done any projects on that yet. So You should um, talk to Seth Sulkin. Yes, I have seen what he's, what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't I know too much about it, but it's kind of along the lines of what you're talking about. I strongly suggest that he does some market research, though, because, <laughs> other, like, slightly self-serving 
uh, yes. comment there, but I do think that it is a, it's a classic area where you need to do market research because you are talking about engineering and your experience. You need to understand what's the nature of the experience up until now. What is it that people really value? Where are the unmet needs and where can you where can you innovate the experience to sort of meet those those unmet needs. So in a market like Japan, that can be as tricky as this market can be. Trying to come in with something completely new, even if it's a really great idea without doing market research, is actually very, very risky. To your point, there's only two ways to grow market share. Sell something that no one else sells or sell it in a way that no one else sells it. So basically creating a new thing or creating a new experience. Yeah, and it's a pretty gutsy call to think that you can do something that Japanese have not already thought of as well. You know, like most categories here are extremely well supplied. So if you are coming into the market, you really do need to have something that's different. And that's a positive for you being different. And you need to turn that difference into a positive as much as, as, much as you can. That, that's, that's touching a little bit on your three golden rules to market entry in Japan, which yes. we'll get to yes. <laughs> eventually. See, I, I did my homework a little bit. Immutable laws, Andrew. Oh, are. did you listen to that one? <laughs> the 22 immutable laws with Pear? <laughs> He's great. <laughs> so we talked about the changing world of work. Number two is women power. Yes. Japan is still the lowest of the G20 countries in terms of female managers. It's not on track to hit its target for female board members. And it is it really moving forward? Slowly, too slowly. Yeah. But watch out, because women are going to have their own money in the future. Mm, what do you mean by that? Traditionally, women have managed household finances. So women right. have had financial power. So their husbands have worked and the, yeah. their husband gives money to wife and wife. But they're at home budget. with this. They're at home, but it's not their money. So as women progress more into managerial roles and they're better paid, they are going to have the kind of power that comes with having their own money. But how do they get into managerial roles? That's, that's the key right here is what we're talking about. In theory, once they become managers or they, they break this rice paper ceiling, well, it goes back to the vice uh, metaphor there, right? So, like, you're in a vice, right? Yeah. You, of course, Japanese businesses don't want to change the way that they do things. And men don't necessarily want to give up their positions. But they will be forced to. Otherwise, they may have to hire foreigners. Oh, so what a dilemma. That is a, that What's, is, which that, is worse? I, I, I think, I put it this way, I think probably women are preferable and, yeah. and they're easier, of course, you know, because hiring foreigners is a problem because sure there are language issues. Yep, cultural issues. Cultural issues, sure. you know, those common understandings are, you know, difficult. Expectations are very different, but I think it's a matter of necessity. And so companies that yeah. are smarter about it will promote women and I think this is already beginning to happen yeah I mean I'm sometimes a little bit uncomfortable about talking about female empowerment as a male sure however you know in my company half of my management team are women and half are men and I've always worked with women it's never been an odd situation for me to have a female boss or to you know have lots of women in the team and market research as an industry has always been traditionally very balanced in terms of gender and the core issue is lack of flexibility mm -hmm. 
it's not necessarily that organisations are actively trying to discriminate. It's that there is a women have needs for flexibility and the company up until now has not been able to provide that. So COVID actually should provide a big boost to women. But I do think that the COVID situation does present an opportunity. Yeah, I can see that now. I didn't really make that connection until you just mentioned it. It's a good one. Point number three is generational dynamics. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one's not that hard to figure out. Japan is the most aged society in the world. There's no new news that Japan is getting older. But the interesting part of that is the smaller, younger population. So I'm sorry to say that the drivers in all markets will still be young people. The older people as consumers, they have certain needs that need to be met. Right. So I'm not denying that there are opportunities to service those needs as people get older. But the interesting dynamic part of the market will always be younger people. So you have this very small base of younger people. Now, what that provides younger people is scarcity value. Scarcity value. Yes. So still relatively large country. Scarcity value. These people are going to be increasingly well paid. They're going to be able to have their pick of the jobs. Right now it's six to one, right? Yep. Six jobs or six job openings per available body. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been crazy. And anybody who's trying to hire young people knows how difficult it is to hire young people in this market. And you have to sell to them when you're interviewing them. So they come to interview you. It's not, not the other way around. But... You, yeah. call, you call them the Rewa generation. The Rewa generation, yes. The Rewa generation is what I call anybody who's at the forefront of change in Japan. Rewa can be of any age, actually, but there'll be lots of Rewa in the young generation. Sure. But there are Rewa in the older generation as well. And in some ways, older people are more socially dynamic than the younger people. Number four, internationalization. Yes. One that you and I maybe feel closer to perhaps yeah, yeah, yeah. and the success of the rugby world cup mm. and the olympics were really supposed to push japan into internationalization even more than it had been but covid seems to have really put a complete halt to this mm-hmm. is internationalization going backwards at all in japan uh i th- I think the natural tendency is for people to reject internationalization in Japan. That is the basic tendency. We have to accept as foreigners that things will be done differently in Japan and the way that foreigners are treated in this country will not necessarily be the way that we would like it to be done. So I think we we live and work here with that expectation. But the, the reality is that the default is to want to preserve in Japan, so to preserve harmony. The foreign influence is a disruptive influence of its nature, like a foreigner going into any office or any, any situation will be of its nature disruptive. And, and in, a, in a culture that values harmony, such as Japan does, right. foreigners are a disruptive force. I call it the puchi panic, the, the, the <laughs> mini panic. Whenever yes. you go into any boutique or store or restaurant and you just walk in, you can see in, 
in a lot of people's eyes. Yes. So you yes. try to speak yes. Japanese as quickly as possible just to yes. kind of alleviate that, but well, you panic. People don't understand you even when you're speaking quite clearly. It's got, you know, the, the, ten, the trend towards internationalization cannot be stopped. And, and again, it's the same kind of issue in a way that you're looking at with women coming into the workforce because or, or becoming more important in the workforce, actually. Participation rates in Japan of women are, are actually already very high. But it's disruptive. People in this country tend not to favour disruption. So it's much easier. I mean, um, that's, that's the golden rule in Japan is harmony and don't cause meiwaku. Yes, absolutely. Don't cause problems. That's yeah. that's like the underlying theme of well, Japanese society. Well, and this is why problems don't get solved because people would rather leave a problem than to take a risk in the solving of the problem. But mm -hmm. we see this in marketing in Japan all the time. You look at it, you look at an area like skincare for example. Okay. I'm, if I went to the market with a wrinkle cream that would smooth people's wrinkles out in four weeks and make you look 20 years younger, a very large proportion of the market would reject that product because it's just too extreme. People will be saying, is this going to hurt me? Am I going to get cancer? Am I going to burn my face off? Uh, these too good to be true. Too good to be true. There must be a catch. You look at household cleaners. So I did a project for a company that had a very strong all-in-one cleaner. You spray it on, wipe it off, gives you an amazing sparkling clean. But no, in Japan there's a yellow one. I don't know, I can never remember which is which. There's a yeah. yellow one for the bathroom and there's a green one for the sink and a white one yeah. for the walls. I, I can't remember. You can obviously tell I don't do that much cleaning. Uh, <laughs> but... The, the idea of coming in with a cleaner that's so strong to do every job makes people nervous. So people reject. Even if you give people what would be extremely attractive to a Westerner as a cleaning solution, people may reject it. The Japanese consumers, they like to have one product for one thing. Mm. So you're talking about three different cleaners, one for the bathroom, one for the kitchen sink, and maybe one for the walls. That makes sense to me for somebody who's lived here for a long time because they don't want to use the product that they clean their toilet with as a product that they clean their sink where they wash dishes that they eat off of. Mm. I can sort of understand that. I used to work for a office products company and we had a folder, a paper folder. You could put copies in it, you could put recipes in it, you could put whatever. It was just a paper holder. Overseas, we just had one version, but we could actually change the colors of it mm. and call one a paper holder, called one like a invoice and receipts holder, and then another one could have been, I can't remember what it was, maybe it was like photos or memory holder, or memory keepsakes holder or something like that. It was the same product, but it was we just changed the color of it and called it something different and we got three times the sales as we would have had for just one. Mm. Excellent marketing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's beneficial for companies to understand that. Dominic, do you have a favorite <laughs> Japanese word that yes. doesn't have a real direct English translation? I do. Give I do. it to me. I do. I use it when I'm criticizing people. Um, Chutohampa. Chutohampa. I like that one too. And how would you describe it? Chutohampa is not doing it badly, 
but not doing it particularly well. Kind of half-assed. Yeah, kind of half-assed, right? Yeah. So you'll look at somebody's report that they've written and you go, you know, these conclusions here, they're kind of due to humper here. You're kind yeah. of like, you're, you're afraid you might you might alienate the client here, but you're not really communicating yeah. very clearly what actually we've witnessed through this process. Sure. That's an example of due to humper. A good example, direct example right here with you and me is that you've been drinking pretty slow. Yes. So the first beer, you still have about one-eighth left. But by now, it's room temperature. So if you were to drink that right now versus the nice ice-cold one that you just received, this beer would probably taste a little bit chutahampa. Yes, yes. And the thing is, I actually would drink it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's not like I wouldn't completely reject it, but but it wouldn't be the best experience because, I've ever had. Because that also brings us to the other nice Japanese word of motainai. Motainai, yes. It mo- would be a waste. Yes, yes, yes. yes Chutahampa, yes. I like that one. Yes, yes. No one's ever said that word before. Usually I, I get like ikigai, omotenashi, yes. and a lot of these are kind of real cool... <laughs> You know. Yeah, well, I think Chutahampa is what you get too when you have foreign brands sometimes come in and no one can really agree in terms right. of like how the, how the advertising should look or the way the packaging should be or, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. So if you don't celebrate your difference, you can sometimes come up with a very Chutahampa execution. Sure. That's fantastic. All right, so let's then get into your three golden rules to a successful market entry in Japan. Number one is Japanese consumers will look for signs of trust before they buy. So trust. Yes. Number two, turn your differences into your advantage. Basically creating your own unique selling proposition. Mm -hmm. And number three is reset the agenda in your category. Those are your yes. three golden yes. rules. Yes. Okay. Violate them at your peril. I promise you that no one will buy from you in Japan if they don't trust you and they don't know you. The end. Okay. How the do you end. create the trust? There are many, many ways that you can create trust. Okay. So, so contact yeah. the Carter Group <laughs> to learn about well, trust. There are, there, are classic, there are classic ways of creating trust. I mean, why do you think that celebrities are used in advertisements in Japan? Sure. You can partner with local brands. You can offer money-back guarantees. There are many things that you can do. Mm-hmm. It's not rocket science, but nope. you do need to address the issue that if you're a foreign player here and nobody knows who you are, that you have to do something to address that and to get people to be open to buying from you. Because consumers are risk adverse to begin with. Especially Japanese consumers, especially, you know, that spending money is something that isn't done lightly in Japan. So trust is extremely important. So then the next, you know, turning differences to your advantage is you are going to be different. You are foreign. Is it a problem? It doesn't need to be a problem. It can be a great advantage. So... The fact that you're selling cookware, which is nothing like a domestic manufacturer would make and nothing like traditional Japanese cookware. There's a reason why you were established in 1731 and you're still around today. Yes. The storytelling component. 
Yes, so you use that to your advantage. So the difference is not something that you necessarily need to downplay. Mm-hmm. So we'll have clients that will say, well, we're a very, very so-and-so brand and it's not very Japanese, so therefore we need to be more, should we be more Japanese? And the answer, of course, is no. You need to be proudly who you are. Are there aspects of our brand that we need to play down in Japan? Mm-hmm. Possibly, possibly not. Yeah, mm. there, there's an argument there for localization. I think until you really, well, absolutely, there is always going to be some degree of localization needed. It's very rare that a brand can just come in here and do things the way um, that it does overseas. But also, the things that brands worry about coming into the market are usually the wrong things to be worried about. Until you've actually done your homework, you don't really know what are the points of difference that are actually going to potentially resonate. Do you have an example of that? Prime example in this market is US car brands. Okay. <laughs> US car brands have consistently messed it up in this market. That's right? true. Okay. So, uh, one of the uh, years ago, uh, one of the first projects I did in Japan was for a Ford. It was an advertising campaign for Ford Focus, which is a small Corolla-sized Ford. Yes. Right? I have no idea why Ford thought that this is the model that they should be leading in Japan with. Oh, okay, yes, because people drive small cars in Japan and uh, therefore, you know, people have small garages and makes sense, right? Or a garage at all. But you're coming, exactly, but you're coming into the land of the small car. Like right. Japanese brands invented the, the small car right. as a, a kind of like a, um, a category. So in actual fact, like what's really good about Ford is that in America they make really big cars, right? This right. is really, really what they do really well and they're really bad at making small cars. <laughs> And uh, so really what Ford needs to be selling in Japan is a Lincoln. They don't need to be selling Ford Focus. They need to be selling a Lincoln Navigator, right? And they need to say, you know what? We're American. The cars are big. Ford's not a Navigator. Ford doesn't make the Navigator. Uh, Well, they're part of the Lincoln's part of Ford. Oh, are they? Yeah. yeah. Isn't isn't the Navigator Chrysler? No, I think it's Ford. Okay. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you know. But we can we can, we can fact check. Well, look, well but, but, only if there was a way that we could look that up. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know much about bikes. I don't know much about cars. I, yeah. No, I like I like my cars. But I'll uh, trust you on this one. Yeah. But I mean, the point is that. Okay. So guess what? The quality is not that great. <laughs> but you know what? The point is when I talk about turning differences to your advantage. Okay. But nobody cares. Like the type of person that's going to buy a Navigator doesn't care. What do in you mean? Tokyo, Does they it, don't care. What the, type of person do you think is going to buy a Lincoln Navigator in Tokyo? You know, they have a completely different set of reasons for buying that car right, right. Um, than most people do. Yeah, sure. So, so that's turning differences to your advantage. The fact that it's big yeah. is the advantage. The Hummer right? exists in, in Tokyo. Yes, yes. Or in Japan. Yeah. 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 So the fact that it's big is actually the point. Whereas people would look, you look at the market and say, oh, most cars are small in Japan, so therefore, as a foreign brand, I should bring in the small car and making a huge mistake. It's like, no, bring in the big big car. Turn your differences to your advantage. 
Like the fit and finish of the car doesn't yep. really matter if it's this big impressive thing rolling down the the road. You know, like people that. are much more interested in the in the image that it creates and yep. so on and so forth. So that's what I mean by turning differences to your advantage. Love it. It could be a weakness, but you turn it into a strength. If you know what's actually really attractive about your brand and what can potentially be turned into a story, then you should be able to do that. The last example is, you know, yeah, resetting the agenda in your category. So mm-hmm. you have to realize that every single category in this country has a bunch of domestic suppliers in there that know their consumer very well. And it's highly, highly competitive. Yep. So you had better make sure when you come into the market that you've got something that'll be a game changer. A real game changer. Otherwise, you, it's just a fad. You come in, oh, it's a different brand of blah, you know, it, I'll try it. And then you go, they go Wait a minute, back I to, like that quote. Would you say that quote yeah. one more time? Uh, being a game changer? Yeah. So basically, you've got no business being in this market unless you think that you can be a game changer. Because the domestic competition has got it all over you in a lot of different ways so if you fail to be a game changer you'll merely become a fat love it i'm gonna quote you on that one yes i have kind of a good example of that you remember cold stone yes ice cream one yes yeah they lasted quite a while but i think the thing is in a situation like that when you talk about game changing the fact that you've entered the market needs to make people think differently about the category uh, so I after I've tried Cold Stone, I can't think the same way about ice cream anymore because mm, Cold Stone's okay. there. So the classic example of this is Starbucks. I'm old enough to remember what it was like before Starbucks came in and coffee in Tokyo was terrible. Starbucks came in, it was a completely different experience. People were not allowed to smoke in the store. Very good design values in the store, um, but you can't... Once you've tried Starbucks, you can't think the same way about coffee. Yeah. So, but that's that's a pretty special example. I mean, this changing the game. There's probably. I mean, this is like what Harvard Business Reviews. Well, well that's why so few people succeed in Japan. Because if you can be easily copied, you'll be copied. So, so that's why you know a fad is something, you know, or your brand can be a flash in the pan because you know you come in for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no equivalent, and people people buy it, and then the you know the competitor comes in and and brings an equivalent. But there are some areas where the competitor can't actually change their business model to compete with you. The Coldstone example mm-hmm. of that, I guess, that was just a gimmick is what that was. It wasn't changing the perception of ice cream. It was just a gimmick. Mm, However, uh, the topic of localization. Mr. Donuts in Japan is extremely successful, and most people think that that's a Japanese brand. Isn't there a fine line between being unique and different, like Starbucks, maybe Costco, Mm -hmm. versus localization, like Mr. Donuts and maybe Kit Kat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that... Sometimes, I mean, Mr. Donuts, I, I think it's essentially a Japanese company that's taken the brand look and feel. So it's almost like an aesthetic exercise that they've gone through, which is, you know, nevertheless attractive. And, like 7-Eleven. Yeah. And, and Kit Kat, of course, had that very lucky thing with its name where 
it sounds like kitokatsu, so I'll certainly overcome. Whoa, wait a minute. Uh, Say that again? What? I, I don't know uh, this story. Kit, Kit Kat okay. sounds like kitokatsu. Oh, uh, kitokatsu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So like, it became popular among students who are, you know, and it's since become this huge phenomenon in every yeah. region. Has Not everybody that listens to this podcast speaks Japanese. So yes. kitokatsu Ki, Ki, is... Kitokatsu, I, I will certainly win. I will yeah. certainly overcome. I will, yeah. you know. Uh, so the market actually kind of adopted it. You know, in general, in marketing, in any situation, when when the buyer projects their own needs and their own, you know, emotions onto the brand, you've got a very successful brand on your hands. So it's almost like the consumer, it is whatever the consumer thinks that it is. So like any successful brand, to some extent, people project their own mm-hmm. their own needs onto it. And they, they're also able to see the brand as being able to fulfill those needs that's cool Dominic Carter you've been very successful in Japan but you've also done a lot of work outside Japan what are your aspirations to take the Carter group internationally I, I want to synchronize the ambitions of Carter group with the internationalization of Japan I want to build upon the knowledge and experience that we have in this market mm-hmm. and use that whether that's helping Japanese companies uh, go outside of Japan, whether that's helping yep. a different sort of company to come into the market, uh, into Japan. I think certainly we want to we want to leverage on that. So we'll always be at Carter Group on the sort of border between cultures in Japan and the rest of the world. That's fantastic. On the future of Japan, shrinking population, it's an aging population, all the things that we've already talked about and that we already know. However, Japan has some great companies, yeah. has some great products. Generally speaking, they really haven't globalized yeah. a lot of these brands, especially smaller brands that just don't have the resources to become international. So if you're Japan-based, it doesn't mean that your future in Japan is doomed because you're going to rely only on the domestic market. You could take some of these Japanese companies and help them explore. The, the idea that Japan's doomed is ridiculous. You know, we have that group of very, a small group of young people who are going to be very highly paid. This provides mm-hmm. a very strong market for luxury goods, elevated goods, goods of, of high quality. Yeah. And tell me, like, what advantage has been having a huge workforce during the latest COVID crisis? Exactly. To compare what's been happening in Japan in terms of social stability versus in the US at this point in time. Yeah. Now, where has the crisis hit harder? So let's look a little bit further into the future to a world that's dominated by AI and robotics. What benefit is a large working age population going to be if you don't have jobs for everybody because they're being done by robots? So it may well turn out that Japan is actually in a sweet spot. We may actually want a very small working age population, relatively speaking. And the people who work are going to be very highly paid. So if you're selling into the market, you're still going to have plenty of opportunities, especially if you're selling an elevated product and an experience. The idea that Japan has no future as a market is asinine. I like that. Dominic Carter, we're going to end there. That's a very, very good quote. Thank you very much. For your time today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you. I learned a few new things, <laughs> Thanks, which, I, which is kind of the point of this whole podcast. 
Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. And that was Dominic Carter, your partner for success in Japan. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Dominic had so many great quotes and so much insight in Japan. Learn more about how Dominic can help your business in Japan at thecartergroup.com. Be sure to check out his blog there. It's great. And if you thought this podcast was great, please leave a review and a five-star rating at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye now.